Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Art Heaven continues to feed 
our sense of magic as it births new dreams for whoever comes through our doors. Just paint for your own well-being. Art is life. So I'm so delighted to welcome her again. You can find out more about her work, her art, and her travels at her website, artfully.com. Carol, welcome. I'd love to just know how you got into your unique artistic style. Well, I think it started when I was around two years old. I was playing in my pablum on my uh, <laughs> table. And, yeah, my mom said, oh, look, at she's drawing in her cereal. And, um, you know, they, they noticed I was doing that every day. I'd just dump out my cream of wheat and I'd start to draw in it. So my dad made me an, a little easel when I was three. I started painting. I had a little difficult kind of family situation that I would escape from. They gave me a little wonderful back porch with my easel and my paints. And I'd go out there and just when I needed to go into a solace or a time of, you know, quiet in my own spirit, I would start. Mm. And uh, when I got to kindergarten, the principal walked me home and told my parents they should give me art, you know, lessons, supplies, whatever, because they have little artists. I was lucky we had a teacher in our family who got art supplies every year, and if she didn't use them, they didn't give her as many art supplies the next year. So she would always show up at the end of the school year with a big box full of paint and paper and chalk, and I always had my my little studio somewhere in the garage or somewhere. So I was very nurtured as a child. It was great. I had a sister who was more of a scientist and very logical, right brain kind of person, left brain. So we didn't have to compete because I was way over on the other side and, you know, I just did my thing and she did hers and that worked well. Until I got to art school, my painting teacher was really intellectual, very critical, and I would end up crying at most of the uh, critique because he would ask me, what are you trying to say symbolically, you know, basically, who are you? What are you doing here? And I didn't have a clue at age 18 what I was trying to say. I was painting big abstract paintings. Um, and for me, it was just about paint um, and creativity and whatever. Anyway, I ended up switching my major. I became a sculptor and started doing large handmade tapestries. I hope you escaped from that teacher. I escaped. In fact, the sculpture teacher said, you know, you just need to get in here and whack that guy. You know, I've got big chisels, hammers, wood, you know. He heard me talking about it, that I was going to quit art school because of, you know, I, I felt I wasn't an artist. And, um, so he helped me get out my, my anger and my frustration and helped me move to the next level, which was really great. When did you start actually add words to your paintings, as you often do? Yeah. That happened when I was, I had moved from San Francisco. I had my own gallery in San Francisco for big tapestries. And you couldn't do words in, in tapestries, really. But when I moved up to Sonoma County, I started doing more printmaking and papermaking and could put words into things. So I would cut out words and collage them. And, and then when I started painting um, in France, I was learning to speak French. So I would write a phrase on the painting before I would start get myself kind of warmed up. You know, I'd say, uh, whatever, it's a beautiful day in French, and then I would paint over it. But sometimes some of the words would want to pop through, and so that was the beginning. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, and as I said earlier, that just being in your space is full of not just beautiful images, but beautiful language. It's so inspiring to be exposed to both of those. How did you then come to start offering those classes in France? It came at a time when I was extremely ill with Lyme disease. I was in a coma and paralyzed and could not talk, and everyone thought I was dying. I, I thought I might be dying, and I, I remembered a, a vision I had as a child of standing in the sunflowers and painting like Van Gogh, and that was always my idea of who like the ultimate artist was, you know, to be out in nature painting something glorious. So I wrote on the wall when I could start to use my right arm, painted crown. And at that time, I couldn't stand very well. I, I would just kind of paint for a half hour and sit down for a couple hours. And But anyway, I did go to France when I started healing and met a really interesting man, Ron Arto, who became my mentor again, taught me to paint again, and ended up buying a funky old house that was like the least expensive house in the village because I just wanted to go there and paint every summer. And the village was surrounded by sunflowers. So it's just my dream come true which was kind of the beautiful jewel that dropped from the whole bad experience of Lyme disease. It was like, oh, well, there's a new turn in the road. This is going to lead to your healing. And, you know, standing in the sunflower painting was just an amazing experience. It was like yellow infusion of light just permeating my body. So it, it, it worked. It that. <laughs> The childhood vision. Sunflower therapy. Yeah. <laughs> it was so great. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. And that was, was that Therese? That was Therese, France. It's a tiny medieval village about an hour outside of Toulouse. And at the time, they had had this beautiful, big military academy that Napoleon had started. It was one of four in France. When they lost the war, they decided they needed to train more young men. So they started this huge academy for 500 young cadets, and it had a parade ground, a big theater, a huge swimming pool, horses. It's just amazing. It's like about six city blocks of buildings. But by the time I bought my house, in Therese. The buildings were in collapse. The school had ended. The little village had no money to replace the roof. And everything was, you know, really beautifully built when Napoleon did it. It was all slate roofs, and but no one had the money to rebuild. So he walked me through the mayor, big place, and said, um, you know, you're an outsider. We've never had an outsider in our village. And I know you're an artist. And, you know, what would you do with this place? And how can we make, you know, our village come alive again? So, um, yeah, I can remember looking in the ballroom and there were like leaves swirling on the floor and the marble, you know, beautiful mantle that someone was trying to steal. It was half broken and was like, oh my goodness, they need, they need to save this amazing place. So I told them about the plan for Fort Mason, been on the board when we created that and it was, um, you know, a similar kind of thing, big old buildings, but sort of falling apart and needing a new refreshing refreshing purpose. So they they listened very well. I told them, you know, you need the opera to come, you need a hotel, you need a good restaurant, you need maybe a conference center, you know, you need to bring back the life. So it's been twenty five years since I gave them that plan and they have done it. And it's amazing now. This little village has just come to life. So 
I remember, too, all the, all the buildings being remodeled there, the homes being remodeled as well, as the as that cultural center came to life, all of the rundown and falling apart and decaying, decrepit homes also got remodeled. Right. Yeah, people are are starting to realize that these little villages, you know, really have the key to some kind of happiness, you know, that doesn't exist in a larger city, that, like, you go to the bakery in the morning and everyone says, oh, you didn't come in tomorrow, are you okay? I mean, yesterday, are you okay, you know? Or why don't you come over to my house for lunch today? You know, I'm making this special whatever. And there's this kind of connection in the village that I think big city folks have really, they they don't even know they're missing it. It's just, you know, but it exists in that little village, which is wonderful. And how about the people who, like you, came into the village? I know that many of your students began to buy houses there and remodel them and get into the art scene there as well. Yeah, there are four or five people now living in the village who either came to one of my painting workshops or they came to rent my house, you know, for one woman, a novelist, has written a couple of books in my house. So, you know, people people need that kind of solace and beauty and, you know, the returning to an, an older, quieter time of life when things were, you know, more peaceful, and we've never put in a television. We don't listen to the news when we're there. We just try to be in French time, you know, and be in a village, which is really a, it's a godsend to have that now. I just love that idea that you shared with the mayor this vision of how it could be and what it needed, and that began in, in your mind. That began as a thought. That began as a set of ideas, and then it was the two of you who resource potential of those things happening. So it was not just one person's idea, but it was two people's idea. And then it became your friends who were coming through there and having the experience of being there, seeing the potential, seeing the old buildings, and more and more and more people caught the vision and then amplified the vision. And so it was initially just that idea then became a fact. It became a fact. And, you know, they were wise enough to uh, connect with the French Tourist Association with a consortium of businessmen who put in big hotels. Uh, but, you know, they were also really cautious to keep the the ancient feeling of, of everything. They have a town architect who, if you want to paint your house in Suresh, you have to, or even your shutters, you have to put different colors outside on the walls and then they say, yeah, well, this feels like still a medieval village or not. You know, you can't paint your shutters purple and Suez. It doesn't work. So they are very careful to redo it, but redo it in a way that's really tasteful and in keeping with their traditional path. And doing both those things, strike that balance, takes an art in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, yeah, I, I don't know where the French get that sense of, of beauty, but I do know that if you raise a child, you know, with art and good music and beauty, uh, they come to expect that. And I think most French children are raised that way. And they're raised, you know, to sit at the dinner table and have conversations. You know, dinners last for a couple of hours in France, and people are communicating and sharing ideas. So I think they grow up with that kind of aesthetic 
um, and they they preserve it. So really, it's a valuable lesson for me as a, an American to have learned how the French do that. When you go into French village, it still feels really medieval and beautiful. And you're creating the same kind of community as well around your studio in Sebastopol. How the process of creating art is like that too. Something begins in your mind and eventually there's a piece, there's a sculpture, there's a garden, there's a building, there's a painting. What is that process for you and how do you immerse yourself in that process? How do you kickstart that whole, that whole magical, um, outworking, that alchemical outworking in which a thought becomes a thing? You know, I think that question remains a mystery to me, uh, even though I've been doing art all my life, uh, there are random things that happen, and it's kind of like taking care of the kindling in the firewood, keeping it dry, so that the fire may happen at some moment, but you're not sure even when it's going to happen. And keeping the kindling dry, for me, is showing up at my studio every day, and writing a word on a canvas, putting a color on a canvas, starting somewhere that then triggers something in the creative mind. Uh, sometimes it's really a, oh, wow, yes, you know, and you know where you're going. Sometimes it's, it's not quite so clear. But I want to tell you about one thing that happened recently that was an amazing Kickstarter for me, and that is uh, my art mother. Her name was Alice Liff. And when I was a young hippie living out in the wilderness and selling my tapestries at the Renaissance Fair, this woman who I'd never met came up to me and said, you know, I love your tapestries. Why don't you have a show in my gallery soon? And she had a gallery in Larkspur, a really good gallery, and I was honored. But I said, you know, if I worked on weaving 10 tapestries, I would starve. I don't have time for that. I have to be selling, you know, these smaller items. And she said, well, just put them in your closet. When you get 10, give me a call. So it took me a couple of years, and... I called her and had my first show at her gallery, and she was an amazing woman at marketing. She got everybody she knew there, and the show sold out. So that allowed me to move off my wildlife preserve and move into the city. She encouraged me to start my own gallery, which I did. It was called the Carol Ray Fiber Center in the big sign center that Henry Adams built. She helped me figure out, you know, how to actually run a gallery, and I I had no experience with that. So she was pivotal in getting me to kind of take a bigger step in a broader range. Anyway, recently she died, and her husband asked me to come and clean her studio. He couldn't go in there, and, you know, it was was really a nest of her soul. So I've been working on that for the last month or so, and out of her studio has come these amazing images that she collected all of her life for her collage work, and they have so inspired me that I've taken this amazing turn in my my path as a painter. I'm now making these shrines, which I call sacred tablets, and they're on wood, and they not only have her collage imagery, which I'm rearranging and changing and making my own, but they have a lot of things that I've gathered from friends who have recently had their homes burned in the fires. So those two elements have come together at this time in my life, you know, 
totally unpredictable element, which has gotten me very excited again. I can't wait now to get up in the morning and race into my studio, and I've been up till late at night every night making these sacred tablets. So that's an example, you know, of just kind of holding the space, doing your work, showing up every day, and then as things like that happen, being open to really moving with that flow. You know, I think that one, of course, the classical idea, the classical image is the muse, and the muse is this inspirational force, or it's often drawn in ancient mythology as a goddess who visits you and brings inspiration to you. And what I find as I talk to people who have regrets that they didn't do that art, didn't write the book, didn't create the piece of music, didn't write the symphony, didn't write the play, is they heard the muse, but then they said, well, I'll do it next weekend. <laughs> Tuesday, the artwork that 
that portray those various stages in my life. And I realized that, you know, art is really a reflection of who we are at every moment. I went back looking through my old slides and photos and things I had done over the last 20 years and found that it was really a match for my words, that, you know, whatever I was thinking and processing was coming out in my art just automatically. So that's part of taking care of the firewood, too, is that you're continuously nurturing yourself with good friends, people that, you know, are positive in your life, meditation, all the things that are, are meaningful to us. You have to keep those dirt into the mix so that out comes the good art. Nourishing all the elements of your life to feed it a good art. I love that idea. Uh, one thing that strikes me as um, pretty different about you is that I mentioned how your art is exuberant. The colors are exuberant, the images are exuberant, the words are exuberant. And it's so at odds with the classical idea of art coming from suffering, that the artist is suffering, is an anguish of the soul, going through a dark night of the soul, and out of this comes the great novel, come, out of this comes the great sculpture, out of this comes the great painting or the great play. And um, nothing about you is at all like that. And talk about that whole idea of creating art exuberantly and not out of suffering. Well, I do believe that the dark side is involved in my art. I think, you know, holistically you have to have a balance of both. But I don't want to roll in the dark side, and I do want it to be equally powerful as my exuberant side. So um, when I feel suffering or, or the depth of emotion, I've learned through Vipassana meditation to just feel that and let it rise and pass away. And, you know, everything changes. So I don't like to hang on to it, but I do think it's a, an empowering um, energy also for art. But yes, you're right, Dawson, my paintings are very bright and they are filled with joy. And I've always felt my job as an artist for my own sense of self, was to keep myself happy so that I wanted to paint more so that I could give this gift out to the world because that's how I am, that's how I made my living and it's also how I get my stroke from the world, just making the world a more beautiful place. But one thing I've learned about that is when I look back over my history, I've always created a community around myself which was full of creators. In San Francisco, when I first started my gallery, I rented a 5,000-square-foot studio, and I had a lot of artists who were helping me do my work, but also artists who were there doing their own work. And we all fed each other. You know, you, you feel like you're in the, the doldrums one day, you go in, and someone else is excited, and they're doing something, and the energy rolls off. And I think that's part of what's kept me really happy as an artist is, I've always created those environments. And in France, you know, the same thing. I'm starting school, and then people who came to my art school are now my best friends, and we have shows together, you know, all over. And it's, it's, you have to feed continuously the, the joy of the path that kind of keeps you on your creative path. Otherwise, it's so easy to get knocked off. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners have been discouraged. They're in a hard patch in their life. And my art mother, who I was telling you about, Alice, she was 
such a better painter than I was at one point. But she didn't really need to put herself out there. She didn't need to make her living. So her paintings just kind of stacked up. And pretty soon she just said, Carol, nobody really likes my work, so I'm not going to paint anymore. And it was like, what? You know, you have to have shows to know that someone wants your work. So you have to have people around you who encourage you to take more risks, you know, to be putting yourself out there and getting back the positive feedback that you need because artists need a lot of positive feedback to keep their courage and their inspiration the whole thing going it's it's not like just going to a job you know where you get a paycheck at the end of the week you've got to create yourself every day yeah you're the creator and it flows from you and if that creativity is happening and powerful and then speaking to people and connecting with them they buy it and that is a is a feedback loop that helps support you and it's through those people giving you feedback that you get new ideas. Like a lot of people who have lost their things in the fire are now coming back to me and saying, lost paintings that I did. Carol, can you do the road into your French village, but, you know, do it a little differently now? You know, it's 20 years later. I like that painting, but, you know, I, I want it. I want you to do something old and new. And so it pushes me beyond my limits, you know, because those people are asking me to do something that I'm not, you know, normally waking up and doing. So that's been a real amazing thing, too, to have clients who are repeat and demand things of me that I wouldn't ordinarily be doing. Someone came to me, um, we had done a huge mosaic on their wall, and same thing, the wall had gotten knocked down to remodel something, and she wanted a whole new mosaic, and, you know, mosaics change because there's different materials. So we, instead of doing small pieces of tile, we painted a whole mural and, you know, got me in the mural painting of, on tile, which was great. Are you still there, Dawson? Yeah, there was a request that brought that in you. And so finally, to the last minute, Carol, tell me how you know when a piece of art is done. Well, I usually get extremely happy when it's done. And when I look at the painting, I usually take, like, segments of it and go around to kind of like a four-by-five segment and look at each area as a little abstract painting and see if I think that there's enough going on, if it's interesting, not just the whole painting, but the parts of the painting. And then usually if there's a particular favorite part that I love that my eye keeps going back to, it's my expand on what you love rule. I I take whatever colors and gestures were in that part and I try to bring it around to the rest of the painting so that the whole painting has that same kind of juicy vibrancy. And then I leave it, you know, and the next day I come back and I look at it again and, you know, I have a different view. I usually keep a painting around for a couple of weeks after I think it's done and it usually grows. I love that idea of taking elements and then making sure you integrate them throughout painting elements you love because when you do look at your paintings, some of them look very simple and yet they do have a cohesion to them, a cohesiveness to them, an integration to them. How thank you so much for sharing your story, your life, your art with us here and thank you so much for the way you share that so generously with everyone around you and in your life. I'm so grateful to know you and I'm so grateful you're in the world of doing what you're doing. I am too, Dawson. It has been like a magic carpet ride for me to be an artist all my life. It's just been the best. The best life I could ever have imagined. 
So thank you so much for noticing. May you keep on going strong for many decades in the future. For more on Carol's work, go to her website, artfully.com. 